uh, I want to read first of all the lesson from the gospel, which is in the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verse 21. We're continuing under the theme, Design of Life, or the Mind of Christ, in a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you will, please, you might like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, 21. Let me go back just a little to verse 17, because I think it will be more helpful. Do not think that I am come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whosoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go your way first and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponents at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And then from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, which we are studying on Wednesday evening at prayer meeting at 7 o'clock, a very practical and wonderful section of that epistle is found in chapter 4. And here I want to switch translations and read from J.B. Phillips, and I think you can tell why. Uh, finish then with lying. Tell your neighbor the truth. For you're not separate units, but intimately related to one another in Christ. If you are angry... Be sure that it is not out of wounded pride or a bad temper. Never go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that sort of foothold. Let there be no more foul language, but good words instead. Words suitable for the occasion which God can use to help other people. Never hurt the Holy Spirit. He is, remember, the personal pledge of your eventual full redemption. Let there be no more resentment, no more anger or temper, no more violent self-assertiveness, no more slander, no more malicious remarks. Be kind to one another. Be understanding. 
Be as ready to forgive others as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. As children, copy their father, you as God's children are to copy him. Live your lives in love, the same sort of love which Christ gives us and which he perfectly expressed when he gave himself up for us in a sacrifice to God. Amen. May God bless to our hearts an understanding of this important part of his word. A friend of mine loaned me a little book yesterday that's been a lot of help to me because he knew the theme for today. There was a certain tramp over in England. If you've ever been in England, you know that the patron saint is St. George, and there is a famous classic story about St. George and killing the dragon, and you frequently see uh, pictures of St. George and the dragon, St. George going up against the dragon. And uh, so this uh, particular story relates a tramp, a hobo, a bum, who was coming along and he looked up and he saw the very picturesque English inn and it had the picture of St. George and the dragon and it said the inn of St. George and the dragon. So he went up and he knocked on the door of the kitchen and the lady who was there in the kitchen came to the door and opened it and she saw this disheveled tramp standing there and he said to her very kindly and very politely, he said, uh, Madam, could you spare a poor man a bite to eat? And she said, you no good, worthless tramp. Why don't you make a living like an honest person? Get out of here, she snapped with great anger and slammed the door. So the tramp started walking away. And he looked back at the sign again, St. George and the Dragon. So he went back up to the door of the kitchen and he knocked on the door again. And the lady flung the door open and was greatly irritated to see that the same tramp was there. And she said, now what do you want? I told you to get out of here. And so he answered her in classic words. He said, please, ma'am, if St. George is in too, may I speak with him this time? <laughs> he reckoned that she was the dragon. And uh, there is a little dragon in us all. Uh, and that dragon has to do with the matter of temper. And, uh, you know, frequently the repressed hostility that we have is often likened to a dragon. I attended a great conference one time in which a distinguished psychologist who had written a number of books dealing with repression and hostility uh, spoke about a dragon. And he said that down inside us all there would be a dragon that would be eating away and that this dragon could be repressed hostility and, and often caused a great deal of trouble. And he said that those patients who came to him for counseling had to learn to face up to the dragon. And he said that after entering into counseling uh, interviews with him because some had attempted suicide, murder, and some were in chronic depression as a result of what had gone on, he would tell them, now look, there is a dragon down in the basement of your heart. And what we've got to do is to go get this dragon. Now we're going to the door of the basement and we're going to open it. And you're going down the stairs into that dark basement and you're going to get the dragon. And he said the patients would invariably say, no, I can't do that, I can't do it. And he said, yes, you can and we will. And so they open the door and they start down the stairs and they timidly run back and he makes them go back again and they go 
and they grab this old dragon by the collar and turn their head away from him and drag him up into the room where they can look at him in the daylight. And then he doesn't look as fierce because you face him. And then the psychiatrist says, you find out what this dragon is eating and you starve him to death. <laughs> and, and that's where the beginning of the cure comes. And there is not a one of us here who is not faced with anger or hostility at times. Everyone in here who has ever been angry, will you please hold up your hand? I'll hold up two of them. I'll be charismatic today. <laughs> well, our Lord Jesus, last week in the lesson that we learned, he said, ye are the light of the world. And he said that we are to be the salt of the earth. Now, the salt, we learned, uh, adds flavor. We learned that it stops corruption. And we also know that it makes thirsty. Uh, the light of the world has to do uh, with bringing the light which causes us to look at things like these ugly dragons and to face them. The word for world that he uses there when he says light of the world is an interesting word. It's cosmos. The word for earth is the word from which we get geography, and that means the little sphere where you work. Cosmos is bigger. It's the order of the world. It's where you ladies get your word cosmetics. So when you put your face in good array in the morning, uh, you're putting on your cosmetics. You're putting it in order. And uh, uh, the light of the world is meant to help us to put our lives in order. And so the Lord Jesus speaks about the law of God. And one of the first things he's going to teach us is that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but that he came to fulfill the law and to fulfill what the prophets have spoken. Now, there are two ways in which something uh, might be destroyed. You might take an acorn, for instance, and and take it out on the sidewalk and put it down and take a hammer and smush it. And that would destroy the acorn. Or you could destroy the acorn by digging a hole in the ground and placing it in the ground and letting it grow into fulfillment. Now Jesus came to fulfill the law. They knew that there were laws that were there, and Jesus does not abrogate those laws. He comes to fulfill them. The laws which he speaks, are at, which are spoken by Moses when he received the Ten Commandments were words from God. And God is absolute. Not even the Supreme Court can abrogate what he says. He speaks. And when he speaks, he is meant to be taken seriously. Now Jesus is going to show us just how seriously he says, not one, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He will accomplish it in himself. Whosoever then annuls one of these least commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that unless your righteousness shall surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't imagine how revolutionary 
That statement is, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were intensely right religious, seeking after righteousness. But their righteousness was outward. And Jesus is going to speak of a righteousness that comes from the inside. He is going to show that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees has to be succeeded. Now the scribes and the Pharisees were sort of the super saints. And when Peter and James and John, these smelly fishermen, heard Jesus say that their righteousness had to, had to exceed the righteousness of people like Nicodemus, who was on the Sanhedrin, had to exceed the goodness of people like that rich young ruler who came falling at his feet. They were startled and they thought, how on earth could that ever be? And so it was a very astonishing statement that he made. And then he goes back and he says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whosoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now this, this teaches us that in the home of these people, there was practiced the teaching of their faith in God. And that's very important for us to remember. Those of us who are fathers and mothers have a great responsibility to instill into our children's hearts the most holy faith which we have. That precious little baby a while ago, Joel, has a mother and father who love Jesus Christ and who have a Bible and who pray with and for their child and who want to bring him up and nurture, the careful nurture and admonition of the Lord. And when we see this taking place in people's lives, it makes a great deal of difference. Your children will gain from you examples of truth and examples of, uh, that we need to follow here. All the things are going to start. The other day we had uh, the young people on the Sunday after Christmas who have come home from college and are members of the Montreal Church to present uh, a program here. Many people spoke of how favorably impressed they were with each of the young people who took part. They're scattered away in all different kinds of universities and academies and schools. These young people showed to us a faith in Jesus Christ that was vibrant and alive and real. It did not come from the preacher. It came from the parents. It came from the Sunday school teachers. It came from people in the community, people in the church and the preacher, all working together to instill in their minds and hearts and lives a love of the Lord Jesus Christ and an understanding of his word. And so Jesus takes it for granted that they know what the law says. And so we must be faithful to our teaching responsibility. Now then we come directly to our theme. You heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever shall say, you fool, 
shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. These are powerful words that Jesus takes. They thought that the law of God meant very simply, if you kill someone, then you're going to have to go to court. And the court can decree that your life be taken away because you were guilty of killing another person. That's a great deterrent to crime. If the person who does the killing is put to death, he's not going to kill anyone else. And uh, so this is a deterrent. And uh, this is what the Old Testament law taught. But it gave it for many offenses that were far less than this. Just being disobedient to parents could cause it. And now then, the uh, Lord Jesus says here, You have heard that you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Well, we could think like Pharisees and think, Well, Lord, I've never committed murder. I never took a pistol and shot anyone. I never stabbed anyone. But Jesus makes it go far, far more than that. He takes us to a feeling which we know as anger. And this is a part of our makeup. And that's the first thing I want to bring out is the fact of anger. Anger is born into a little baby. Little Joel has got anger in him. And I can promise you when he's not fed on time, his little face will turn red and he will scream, scream, scream until someone brings him something to eat. And now, let me tell you this. When we speak of that little angel, if that little angel weighed 175 pounds and was as mad as he is when he gets hungry, he would tear up something because, <laughs> because he's got that instinct in him. He has to have it there in order to grow. A little child learns through anger if he comes and puts his hand on the buck stove and burns it, he's going to kick the stove and be mad at it, but he's also going to look at his burned hand, and he needs to learn how to use it. Now then, there are people who, as they grow, need to do this same thing too. Uh, we need to deal with the fact of anger. Is anger always wrong? Well, unhappily for a lot of us, it is, but there are examples of good, good emotions of anger that we can find in the scriptures. It's in interesting that the first example of anger is wrong because it's in the fourth chapter of Genesis, and that's where a man by the name of Cain becomes jealous of his little brother Abel, who presented a more excellent sacrifice to God and who was reprimanded for his anger when he became angry as a result of jealousy and killed his brother and the first murder was committed. Now then if you think that this uh, type of thinking is not really applicable to us today, I wonder if you know anything about the statistics of murder in the United States. The last statistic I saw, which is, is fairly recent, there were 18,000 people in the United States murdered 18,000. I think that's more people than have been killed in Iran uh, during this revolutionary stage that we hear about there. Far more than were killed in Northern Ireland. 18,000 in the United States of America in one year. 
The other morning I watched Tom Burkall just before the NBC News segment and the early morning news on the Today program. He was saying that in the city of Chicago that uh, crimes of violence were up 68% because of the snowstorm, that people were staying in and becoming grouchy and irritable and unable to deal with each other, and they took their frustrations out in anger. Now, the terrible thing about the murder uh, factor is that most of the murders are committed within families. They're committed by one member of a family against another. If it's not family, it's friends. They go into a bar, they get to drinking, they fight about something, they quarrel about it, and it leads on. Well, the feeling of anger is there. The first murder uh, demonstrated that with Cain with Abel. We read really an almost right and an almost wrong account of Moses in the Old Testament. You remember how he saw his people? The Jews were terribly oppressed by the Egyptians. He became angry one day when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and Moses took a stone and killed an Egyptian, and then he had to run. Sometimes in order to protect the weak, you have to fight the strong. But Moses fled. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. There was another time when Moses was dead wrong with his anger. You remember that time when the children of Israel were crying out in their horrible grumbling against God because they didn't have enough water and, and God told Moses to, to strike the rock and Moses took his rod and he was furious and he struck the rock but he was thinking about the heads of those stubborn Jewish people he was dealing with and he struck the rock a second time. And God said, you're not going to go into the promised land because of that. And there are a lot of us who do not get into the promised land of the type of happiness that we ought to enjoy because of a fit of temper that we throw. He struck the rock a second time and it cost him dearly. There's a man in the Old Testament named Jonah. Jonah is, the, is an interesting person to me. I can identify with Jonah. Jonah wanted to keep God from making a mistake. God was going to send to Nineveh a preacher. Nineveh was the great enemy of Jonah's people. And Jonah did not wish to take to them the message of repentance. He said to God, I know that you are gracious and I know that you'll forgive them if they repent. And so Jonah ran away. This is frequently what we do when we're mad. We either fight or flight. And so he tried to run away. But you remember what happened to him. And there was a lot going on inside Jonah. I always point out when I teach on Jonah that everyone wants to know what's going on inside the big fish. But the important thing is to know what's going on inside of Jonah. Uh, when you see Jonah, he's angry. Well, he got taught a very bitter lesson. And when he was cast up on the shore... He preached a magnificent sermon. It's probably the best sermon in the Old Testament. Everyone in town repented, including the dogs. And uh, we got some dogs in Montreat that ought to repent. And uh, we, he had a great sermon. And it was very effective. And uh, they repented. But instead of being happy about this repentance, Jonah wasn't happy. 
Jonah was furious. He was mad. He said, God, I told you you'd do that. I knew these people, were, you're so gracious. That's the trouble with you. You're too good. And, and, and a gourd grew up and gave Jonah some shelter from the sun, and he relaxed in that cool sun, in that cool shade of the, away from the sun, and then God sent a worm. Everything in that story obeys God except Jonah. The fish obeys God, the dice obeys God, the worm obeys God. But Jonah, he doesn't. And so you remember what happens? The gourd withers and dies. And Jonah becomes angry again. And so God says what we ought to write down and remember. Doest thou well to be angry? Doest thou well to be angry? And he said, I do well to be angry. Then God reasons with him and teaches him a lesson. I'm very thankful for that because that shows there's forgiveness. The fact of temper is there. And this temper that I've been illustrating here has been a, a wrong kind of temper. But then there's another kind of temper you can see in the Old Testament that is, that is right. That's when Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes and sees his people taking advantage of one another. And he is angry because he sees the wrongness of what is happening. And when he sees the wrongness of what is taking place, he remonstrates against his people for their wrongness and is very angry with them and seeks to bring them back into what is right. When you come into the pages of the New Testament, the third chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, you will read about Jesus going into the synagogue. And there is a man there with a withered hand. And Jesus sees this poor man with a withered hand. And Jesus knows what everyone's thinking here this morning. And he knew what everyone was thinking in that synagogue. And Jesus said, is it right? Is it right to heal a man on the Sabbath day? Is it right to do good or to do evil? He had spoken to them at some length about this, and he said, if you have an ox, an animal, and it falls in a ditch, you feel so sorry for that poor animal that you'll go pull him out. You don't want him to die. But he knew what they were thinking. He knew that they had come not to be edified, not to be built up in their faith, but to get ammunition to criticize him. And he could read their minds, as he always reads our minds. And so Jesus says to them, is it right to heal this man in effect or is it wrong to heal him on the Sabbath day? They maintained a stony silence. Silence, we are told, is golden. But sometimes it's really yellow, not gold. And Jesus was angry at their silence. He shows the emotion of anger here at them. And Mark, who gets his record of what Jesus does from the apostle Peter, who was noted for his emotions, Mark tells us about the emotion in Jesus' face. And, and it literally says that he glared at them in anger. Jesus did. 
And then he healed the man with the withered hand. He wanted them not to blame on God, their inhumanity toward this poor person who was crippled. And so he went ahead and healed that man and tried to teach them a lesson that the law of God is meant to help, not to hurt, but to help, to fulfill, to make something more beautiful. There are many other examples. Uh, Jesus, Jesus one day saw the disciples forbidding some little children to come to him. And he wanted very much to take these children up in his arms and to bless them and to love them. I'm sure that the children must have climbed all over him and Jesus just ate it up. He loved it. And there must have been something about him that attracted children because children in that day and time were not so given as they are now to coming to people, but there was something about the children that uh, they, they could see something in Jesus that made them want to come to him. And so they, they came to him and were running up to him, and Jesus was uh, picking them up in his arms and blessing them. I saw the Pope the other day picking up some little children in Mexico and blessing them, and it, it looked sweet to me. That old man, the, I hope that's not irreverent, uh, uh, picking up those little children and, and, and blessing them and kissing them, little Mexican children. And uh, Jesus took the little children in his arms and blessed them. And the disciples came running up there and they said, get these kids away from him. And Jesus was angry with the disciples. And he said, let these children alone and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus uh, sought to correct them. And then, of course, there is another time when Jesus is on his way to the cross. And he had said some strong words. He had performed miracles of healing. He had fed hungry multitudes. He had walked on the waters. But he knew that he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to die. And there were great crowds that were following him. And he had been trying to tell them about the demands of a disciple. And he said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be a disciple of mine. Now here he does not mean hate in a mechanical, monstrous sense. But he means it in the sense that there can be no competing loyalty. I must always come first. And so the people still kept coming in great droves. And Jesus, on his way to die, in the very path that would take him to the cross, was not impressed by shallow throngs of people who he knew had not counted the cost and would not pay the price and would not suffer the slightest sacrifice for the kingdom of God. And so he looked on them with some anger. And then, of course, we know that he went into the temple. And you remember how he overturned when he got into the temple and saw the the animals that were there being sold and the money changers who were making money. Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and his, he was jealous and indignant because of the righteousness of God. He said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. 
get these things out of here. And he, he, he platted a, a whip and took it and drove them out of the temple in a great outburst of rage. He did this not protecting himself, but because he saw them perverting and misleading the people. Now Paul, in one of the passages in Corinthians, sees people who cause others to stumble, and this causes him to warn them about it. He wishes to warn them uh, about this stumbling. He says, who is offended? Who is caused to stumble? And I burn not. That means he feels angry. If you have your bulletin, look at this little lesson for you there. From the design for life. See the part from Ephesians paraphrase. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. With all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. My power of anger is not to be destroyed, but it's to be transformed and purified. Anger can be like an unclean bonfire, and it can also be like a sea of glass mingled with fire. That's like heaven. There can be more smoke than light in it. There can be more selfish passion than holy purpose. The fuel that feeds it may be envy and jealousy and spite, and not a big desire for the good of men and the glory of God. Worldly anger is set on fire of hell. Holy anger borrows flame from the altar fires of God. Now look at that next statement in capitals. Our anger reveals our character. What is the quality of your anger? What kindles it? Is it incited by our own wrongs or by the wrongs of another? Is it set on fire by self-indulgence or by a noble sympathy? Here is a sentence which describes the anger of the Apostle Paul, who is made to stumble and I burn not. Paul's holy anger was made to burn by oppression, by the cruelty inflicted upon his fellow men. His fire had nothing unclean in it. It was pure as the flame of oxygen. This is the anger that we must cherish. We cannot work ourselves up into it. We must seek to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That's from John Henry Jowett. Now, that's an important lesson to remember uh, at that point. The fact of anger is there. I wanted to talk about the foolishness of anger, but if you were watching the Gator Bowl, you saw some of that. When Woody Hayes ran out on the field and, and hit a guy who intercepted a pass that his team had thrown. Uh, and he got fired from his job uh, for it. That was foolish anger. Uh, it was selfish pride. And he still was stubborn not to even apologize to the Clemson team for it. Now, I can admit that a man can go temporarily bananas and do some crazy thing like that, but at least after he simmers down, he ought to apologize. And uh, uh, he didn't, uh, on, and that's, that's really terrible that he didn't apologize to the Clemson team for that. As much uh, good as the man has done, what is an awful way to end a tremendous career. Uh, I was not surprised when I read that his great hero was George Patton, who also had a little trouble with uh, anger and once drew out a pistol and started to shoot a guy who was uh, uh, ruled by the doctors as incapable of, of uh, 
participating in combat because of uh, he was shell-shocked or in some type of psychological reaction. So there's a foolishness in anger that we need to avoid that is no pride to any of us. Every man, uh, let him be quick to listen, slow to use his tongue, slow to lose his temper, for man's temper is never the means of achieving God's uh, goodness. Now let me say about your temper and my temper. I found uh, in a little book by David Augsburger, which someone loaned me, these four rules that I want to get in as quickly as I can. To control your temper, slow it down. Learn to delay your anger. Set a time later to settle your conflict or misunderstanding. This is one of the f few good uses of the habit of putting things off to later. Uh, if you're going to get mad, put it off. Uh, then your emotions will cool off and you'll have a clear head and your judgments will return. Number two, don't put it off too long. Set strict limits on the delay. Don't let yourself do a slow burn over anything. Now here, we have to remember that repressed anger is like a tea kettle that you hold the lid down on. It'll blow up. And so you have to have some outlet for it. There has to be some way of getting it out in the open. But neither do you want it to be like a volcano that lashes out and burns everyone up in existence. So the Christian has to have what I have called controlled rage. But let the Holy Spirit control the rage. Uh, keep close tab on yourself. Balance your books at the end of the day. The Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Philip says, don't go to bed angry. You know why? Because you're in, in your subconscious, you'll be sleeping with that kind of junk in your head, and it's not good. Number three, learn to be honestly open with your anger problem. Go get the dragon, bring him up in the daylight, see what he's eating, and quit feeding him. Don't let him get envy or jealousy or whatever it is that's causing uh, that anger to work. One of the best ways of controlling anger, writes a great psychiatrist, is to talk the problem out. If you can't find anyone suitable to talk it out, talk it out with yourself. Dr. Menninger, the psychiatrist, warns, do not talk when you're angry, but after you've calmed down, do talk. Sometimes we push each other away and the problem between us festers and festers. Just as in surgery, Free and adequate drainage is essential if healing is to take place. And so it has to be with anger. Examine each anger situation and ask yourself exactly why this touched off my temper. Self-understanding is a key to anger prevention. But the real key is in the last point, which is the forgiveness of anger. When we forgive it, we bring it to the cross. We think of Jesus as bearing on the cross all of our lying, all of our thoughts that have not been right, all of the horrible sins that we've done, but Jesus bore in his own body on the tree the sins of our anger too. And so we go to him. And when we go to him, we find that he has the power to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to take away the sting of that 
terrible hostility that sees within us. And how does he do that? He does that because Jesus came to send us a great teacher, another teacher, and that teacher is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit produces the fruits of the Spirit in our life, and the first fruit is love. And so that's the antidote to it all. Let me conclude by reading you these words. If I speak with the eloquence of men and of angels, but have no love, I am become no more than blaring brass or a crashing cymbal. If I have the gift of foretelling the future and hold in my mind not only all human knowledge, but the very secrets of God, and if I also have absolute faith which can remove mountains but have no love, I amount to nothing at all. If I dispose of all that I possess, yes, even if I give my body to be burned, but have no love, I achieve precisely nothing. The love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. The word patience comes from a Latin word which means suffering with sense. Patience. Slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not keep an account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it's glad with all men when truth prevails. These are the things that we need to remember that are the antidote to anger, the work of the Holy Spirit in producing in our lives the mind of Christ and the love of Christ, which means forgiveness. Seventy times seven, Jesus taught we should forgive. And when we learn to forgive like that, we really have to die to self. And when we are crucified with Christ, then we're not going to cut other people down with these terrible words, reka, which means an empty-headed person. We're not going to call a person a fool. These are ways of cutting people down. Over in England, I went to the Keswick Convention once in Big Tent. They emphasize holiness there. At the end of the surface, they often speak on something like this, and they admonish people to do whatever they have to do to make things right where they've done things wrong. And more than once, the post office in Keswick has run out of stamps because of people getting stamps to write letters to people asking their forgiveness for some act of anger uh, which they have done. A minister I know of spoke at Shroon Lake in New York to a group of young people, and sometimes young people get very sharp-tongued and can think up ways of cutting you down in a tremendous way. Ruth Graham says, the worst thing I ever said from this pulpit was the older you grow, the more like yourself you become. <laughs> I hope we don't become like ourselves because your tongue would get sharper every year, if that's true. And if it gets any sharper than it already is, we're going to be in trouble.
because that's, that's the wrath and anger and bitterness and clamor that we want to avoid, which destroys people and cuts them down. We wouldn't kill them by shooting them with a pistol, but we can kill them by a dirty word that we speak about them or an untrue word. We can cut them down till we destroy their confidence. We can inflict unhappiness upon them. When Jesus told of the two sons in Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son, we always think about the one who wasted his father's substance in riotous living. But the other brother who should have been happy that his brother came home was angry and would not go in. And his anger spoiled the happiness of the whole family. His place was empty there at the table. Everyone was rejoicing but him, and he was outside angry. But the father, very graciously, went out there and reasoned with him. You know what he said to him? I think he put his arm around him, and he said, Son, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. He said it was right for us to make merry and to receive your brother who's come back. He wanted him to, to feel one with his brother. Now, we're not to let the anger destroy personhood or brotherhood or our church relationships, but we need to make things right. And so in your own hearts, in your own way, uh, you can ask God to speak to you, and I can ask him to speak to me. You know, I thought this morning I'd tell you who I was preaching to. People ask me every now and then, who are you talking to? I'll tell you. I was talking to a guy named Calvin. And I don't mean John Calvin. And I don't mean Calvin Smith. I mean Calvin Fieldman. I need this as much as anyone else does. And I got a sneaking hunch that you do too. Now the answer is in the forgiveness of Christ. And that's in the mind of Christ. God, our Father, we confess unto thee those things which you already know about us. And wherever our judgment has been in error and we've done those things which have been dishonoring to, we, to thee, we humbly implore thy forgiveness. Wherever we should show to others love because we've offended them through temper, we pray that you will cause us not to let the sun go down on any unsettled grudge but to do whatever we can wherever it's possible to make it right. We thank you, Father, for the gracious promise of forgiveness that you bring to us and that you can pull out these darts and heal these wounds and that you can make things right and that you can make them well. We praise you for the instruction and the convicting power of your word. We only ask now that the greater teacher, the Holy Spirit, will cause us to put it into effect in our day-by-day -day walk. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.